Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to speak to Richard Davies, author of a new book called Extreme Economies, What Life at the World's Margins Can Teach Us About Our Own Future. I should admit, I have a fairly massive conflict of interest here uh, because Richard actually helped to hire me when he was at The Economist. So obviously his decision making is really, really great. He is no longer at The Economist. He is now at the LSE. And I am just super happy that we got to record this conversation. I too was really happy that Richard joined us. And I do recommend his book, Extreme Economies. In this episode, we focused on one of the stories that he tells in the book about the city of Glasgow. Glasgow at one point was the world's hub for innovation, culture, and as we're gonna talk a lot about, shipbuilding. As a bit of motivation for this story of, of Glasgow, uh, the, the story that Richard tells tries to explain a bit of something called, called the Glasgow effect. Essentially, now there is something about Glasgow that that means that the people who live there have a lower life expectancy and are in worse health than people in other bits of the UK that are similarly kind of economically deprived, like Manchester or, or Liverpool or, or Birmingham. Comparing similar bits of those cities, there seems to be something that leads to worse health outcomes in Glasgow. And so Richard tries to, to explain why some of that is. And so Richard is going to tell us the, the story of the history of Glasgow. And at the end, we'll finish with lessons that he thinks Glasgow has for the rest of the world. Richard, hello. Hello. Okay, so so we're going to talk about um, a chapter in your new book, Extreme Economies, and and in that you cover Zatari refugee camp, prison in Louisiana, kind of Santiago, where there's all, all sorts of inequality. So, what made you want to include a chapter about Glasgow? Well, the the idea for the book is to go to places where people are facing tests shocks, tensions, trends that I think uh, we can all learn from. And the short answer, so I I tried to go to the global extremes, and the short answer um, with Glasgow uh, is actually James Bond is the answer. There's a fantastic documentary, which I recommend to any of your listeners, called The Bowler and the Bunnet. Um, Those words refer to the hats that people in Glasgow used to wear. So the bowler was worn by the owners of the Glaswegian shipyards, and the bunnet uh, was worn by the workers. And in 1967, Sean Connery, at the height of his James Bond fame, um, made a short documentary about Glasgow called The Bowler and the Bunnets. And right at the start, something I've, I've always liked, and right at the start, his kind of first piece to camera, he turns up uh, in his Aston Martin, looks at the camera and says, welcome to Glasgow. If you want extremes, this is your place. Um, was there anything else after that initiation? Yeah, the more serious answer is that I think trade, I mean, you guys know uh, better than most, is absolutely key question to the future of the global economy. And in my view, there's no other city um, worldwide that has had a more volatile experience in terms of trade. Glasgow first rose actually on tobacco. 
and it rose because of its location on the west of Scotland and the favourable trade winds, and also kind of clever politics and policy by um, the city of Glasgow, which meant that it got a monopoly in the European tobacco trade. And you can still see that today in the, the very old merchant city in the centre. A small number of families became kind of oligarchs of the time. They were known as the Virginia Dons or the Tobacco Lords. And they invested in Glasgow by dredging the, the Clyde, by dredging the river. So there's this saying in Glasgow that the Clyde built Glasgow and Glasgow built the Clyde. But really, I argue, and the point of the chapter is that trade built Glasgow. And in a very real, literal sense, Glasgow, I think, built global trade. So in what era is all of this starting to happen where Glasgow's really taking off? So essentially, Glasgow rises first on tobacco, and then American independence um, cuts the tie, so late 1700s, that Glasgow has on tobacco, and you get a kind of technological shift. They dredged and deepened this river, so it was a great site for trade. But also in Glasgow, there was a big uh, linen-making industry, and so they had expertise in uh, metalwork and also in steam engines from steam-powered looms. And so in the early 1800s, around 1830, Glasgow is the place where the first um, steam-driven ships are built. And that's really the the route. That's why I say that I think Glasgow built um, global trade, because shortly after, so those boats were steel, uh, wooden-hulled boats with um, a wheel on the side of them, and a, and a steam engine would drive that. And then by the 1840s, the first boat, kind of, if you want the name of a kind of key piece of technology um, for global trade, it was called Vulcan. And Vulcan was the first steel-hulled ship with a steam engine at the back. And it's really the kind of great-great-grandfather, or grandmother rather, as a ship, of the modern uh, ships that define global trade today. And from there, Glasgow really flourished. The UK became the hub, the global hub, of shipbuilding, and Glasgow, and particularly a part of Glasgow called Govan, was the core of, of that te- technology. So, so what about Glasgow meant that that was all happening there? Kind of, I guess you know, another way of asking that would be, you know, what's the kind of economic theory behind why Glasgow became so successful in this area? Well, the his- the history, I guess, is this ability to pivot from tobacco and uh, into shipbuilding and to essentially technology adoption would be the first the first bit of economic theory. But then around the time of Glasgow's heyday, so the, the late 1890s, the, the question really is industry can be located anywhere. There are other, other rivers in the UK. Why is there such value for people to be in Glasgow and to be quite so closely packed together? And one of the things I talk about in the book is just as Glasgow was kind of hitting its peak, Alfred Marshall put out his book, Principles of Economics. And a key part of that, very popular today in the kind of modern urban geography literature, is this thing called the holy trinity of agglomeration. So that's the question of why do firms find it valuable to locate next to one another? And why, in the case of shipbuilding, did that 
turn out to be the case? Yeah, so the, the Holy Trinity are, th- are three things, as per all Trinities. Uh, it's pools of labor. So there's value in being in a city or a town where there's a skilled um, pool of labor. And as Marshall puts it, the skills of whatever that city's industry may be are in the air, quotes, in the air. And um, that means that any firm can come along and kind of hire people and that they know that they'll have those skills. The second one um, is technology spillovers. And you certainly saw that in Glasgow. Essentially, it's a, it's a big river, so listeners can kind of picture it running right into the city. And all along that river are competing shipyards. And the way shipping worked is when a ship finishes, actually everybody would, would get laid off and would go on to work at another yard. So it was sort of impossible to keep your technology and your techniques secret because everybody worked all the yards and actually the city was defined by technological spillovers. So that's the second kind of force. And then the third one is really strong supply chains. So because the shipyards are there, globalization is taking off, there's huge demand for the ships. Everything that's provided to those ships from heavy industry ironworks, forges, the companies making the cranes, for example, that would lift the trains that were also made in Glasgow onto these boats, all of those were separate companies. But then softer things like woodwork, carpentry, carpet fitters out, and all the bakeries, um, the cinemas, the retail stores that provided all the services to those employees. Do you have a sense of, at its peak, how big a role in shipbuilding did Glasgow play? Glasgow, both in the terms of the amount of production, but also as a source for ideas and technology, was the absolute heart of British shipbuilding. And by at the turn of the century, it was um, uh, the completely dominant, essentially. And still by 1947, the UK was producing almost 60% of the global fleet. And Glasgow was the, was the home hub of that. There were other places, of course, Sunderland, Newcastle, and so on, but, but Glasgow was the pinnacle. But the Titanic was not built in Glasgow. No. I, I looked that up on Wikipedia. It was built in Belfast, apparently. Yeah. Belfast, Belf, Belfast was, a, was a big production center as well. But a lot of the kind of Queen Mary uh, boats, some of which are now um, rest, uh, now defunct in the U.S., were built in Glasgow. And, you know, on top of that, so that's the kind of economic might, there's a huge cultural, social, artistic pinnacle of Glasgow, which again is all around the, the, the turn of the century, so the 1890s, where Glasgow starts to become seen as the best city in Europe. So the leading German art critic of the time famously said, if you want to see art, forget London, Glasgow's the place. The Glasgow industrialists were big buyers of Impressionism and helped shift tastes um, towards Impressionism during that time. Um, The city was packed with theatres. It was packed with cinemas. It didn't have the first underground system, but it had the best. The one in London and Budapest were powered by steam, so they were kind of smoky, but Glasgow's was powered by, it was on a kind of rail thing that pulled it. So it was a clean underground system. Okay, so Glasgow is really this kind of hub of of economic and also kind of cultural, social success. Um, So when did the warning signs start? I I think really um, after the Second World War. The competitors, the shipbuilding competitors, which were Germany and Japan, were bombed very heavily by the British. And so there was a kind of short-term benefit because of that. There was a kind of um, push... Uh, global trade actually picked up because um, people were rebuilding across the world and also the kind of peace um, 
and prosperity, sense of optimism in the 40s and 50s. And the UK did very well out of that. But looking at it now back with the benefit of hindsight, um, the UK shipbuilding, including Glasgow, was clearly resting on its laurels. And what happened essentially, the first problem was that um, Germany, and in particular Japan, rebuilt and rebuilt built their shipyards in a, using new technology, which was vastly more productive. But so the kind of the history of Glasgow, though, is the, the kind of the pivot, right? Um, yeah. Historically, Glasgow was was able to kind of adopt technologies. So why why did that not happen in this case? I guess it's something to do with the sort of, to use the economics term, a kind of hysteresis or the problem of the va- seeing the value of installed capital and not of rebuilding. So the Japanese shipyards had been completely destroyed. And again, just to give listeners a view of what Glasgow is like, these are huge ships over 200 feet long, and they're being built on a riverbank. And they have to be built on an angle so that when the ship is finished, you can knock out the supporters and it slides down into the river. Um, well, anybody who's ever put up a kind of set of shelves or a picture knows that you sometimes need a spirit level. You need to know when things are even. So imagine building a 250-foot-long ship, not on the even. They had to have a special instrument called the declivity instrument, which was set at 13 or 17 degrees. So every single thing they were building, they were building kind of wonky so that when the ship went into the river, it would be flat. What the Japanese did was built things called dry docks. So instead of building the ship on, on the riverbank, you built a dock to the side of it, dug down into the ground. It was completely horizontal. It was also huge, hence economies of scale. And then when the ship's finished, you kind of knock down the riverbank, flood the dock with water, and the ship can sail off. The UK, nowhere in the UK did that, and they certainly didn't do it in Glasgow because they already had this installed capacity. Could you talk a bit about the changes in demand that were happening at the same time? Because it wasn't all changes in in sort of technology or supply, right? No, there are big. There are also big shifts in demand that uh, the Glaswegian shipyards failed to respond to. An important one is the change in the way people were transported and the advent of air travel. So Glasgow had had a big role um, with the famous Cunard lines. You may have seen kind of famous posters advertising travel either to the United States or from the United States back um, to the UK. Um, But when with the advent of airliners, people wanted, when they went on ships, to travel on smaller ships and often go on cruises around the Norwegian fjords and so on. And Glasgow did not respond to that, and that gave Norwegian, for example, shipyards a big foot into the market. Similarly, the type of um, products that were being carried, uh, sort of oils, tanker-based shipment of raw materials, Glasgow didn't didn't respond to that. And the, the reason, the deeper reason with, with that is one that actually we've seen across British industry for the past 60 years is a very low rate of investment. So the Glaswegian shipbuilders reinvested less than 5% of their profits into their shipyards. And part of that meant that they were using old and redundant machinery. So it was a demand shift, but they also failed to shift their kind of supply machinery to respond to that. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about unfair trade, because nowadays, certainly, shipbuilding is one of the most heavily subsidized industries out there in the world. Um, was that 
a concern at the time that the new competition that was coming in from Japan was was getting unfair subsidies? Yeah, it was a, it was a massive concern at the time. So the Glaswegian shipbuilding industry rose, um, I would say, as a kind of private industry. These were private individuals, private entrepreneurs. By the 1960s, it was clear that the Japanese government, for example, was helping companies with cheap loans invest in these huge new uh, shipyards. For example, in in the 1960s, a a team went out, I think from the UK Treasury or certainly UK civil servants, and they found that one of the uh, Japanese yards had 22 times the level of productivity in terms of a tonnage of ship per, per man per year. Um, that the British yards had. So there was certainly big concern about that. But it's important to say it was not the case that the UK kept going with this private industry. Rather, the state really attempted to help the shipyards, but did it in an incredibly bungled way. OK, so tell us about the bungling. What did they try to do? It's it's always easy, isn't it, to kind of look back with the benefit of hindsight and criticise policymakers, but it's impossible to, to read about what they did and not think, you know, how did they not see this at the time? So they, they hired a guy called Ray Geddes uh, in 1965. The UK government had been talking about it, both political parties, all departments, for about 15 years. Um, so they hired this guy to do a commission, and essentially what they did, to cut a long story short, is look at the Japanese yards, say... They're really big. They've got economies of scale. So what we will do is we'll come up with this idea of a policy called grouping. So we will group together our existing shipyards, and because of that, we'll get economies of scale. And, I mean, it doesn't take any economic training at all. Um, That's pre-Econ 101 to understand that there's a big difference between one massive shipyard and five shipyards that are miles apart down a river that have been somehow grouped together. Needless to say, so that happened on, on the Clyde, and that was the reason, going back to Sean Connery, that he went there to see how this policy was going on. That happened in 1967. Needless to say, it completely failed. And the, the entity, it was called Upper Clyde Shipbuilders, went bust and was broken up in 1972. And that really, that story from still in 1947 being the global hub of shipbuilding to by the 1970s, sort of 20, 30 years later, having a nationalised, state-run husk, definitely the recipient of a lot of state subsidies, is, I think, the kind of warning of Glasgow, right? It was centuries to build, centuries of skill, and decades to destroy. So when did these changes really start to bite, and what did this ultimately mean for Glasgow? This really started to bite. Um, The 60s were concerning, and the 70s is when places started to go bust. Eventually, the entire nation's industry was nationalized in 1977 and was loss-making conglomerate. So that's the kind of nadir, you'd say. It kind of limps on to to this day, but by the late 1970s is when things had had really gone wrong. And I, I think two points to make about about that and about the mistake and that goes back to that, that those ideas those Marshallian ideas of agglomeration is that those agglomeration benefits are po- what we'd call positive spillovers or positive externalities they're not something we price they're not something we see when you Chad move your um, company and put it next to mine you create a bigger labor pool you create technology spillovers and you create a greater supply chain and I pay you nothing for that and so the danger is that we undervalue that positive externality 
The problem is when you then decide to leave Glasgow with your um, shipbuilding company, we, we don't see, we don't predict enough what the loss will be because we're not taking into account the, the cancellation or the loss of this positive externality. And again, this stuff is much more complex and we know much more about it now. But again, with the benefit now of hindsight, you'd say definitely given the shock waves that tore through the city of Glasgow, that killed the ironworks, that killed the, uh, the people building the cranes, all the shops, the, the carpenters, the fitters out, what should have been done is a massive investment in a big shipyard that perhaps people could have taken turns in using based on whatever the contracts they won. But that wasn't done because we didn't really understand the nature of, of the shocks from the loss of industry. So tell us more about the overall effect then of those shocks. And in the absence of that investment, what happened to Glasgow? What happened to Glasgow was the, um, something we see in other, you know, in other cities across the world, particularly in the US, thinking of places like Detroit, was acute deindustrialization and the economic and socioeconomic uh, effects of that. So unemployment was uh, was negligible, frankly, from from the turn of the century up to the end of the Second World War, and really picked up in Glasgow uh, into the tens of thousands. And today it lingers. So uh, around a quarter of Glaswegian households have no nobody in work, and that's far higher than the average across the UK. And what I did was to go to Glasgow and to meet people who had experienced that. People today in Glasgow who are in their mid-50s are the cohort who grew up with mothers and fathers as one man in the east end of Glasgow. One of the most troubled parts explained to me that the Glasgow of his youth when he was at school was work, work, work. There were work opportunities everywhere. Um, but then when he kind of hit the labour market uh, after school, age, age 16, industry had gone and a whole cohort of people led a life essentially defined by unemployment or underemployment. And those things are very strongly correlated with a whole host of health problems from diet, drinking, smoking, drug abuse. And it's what gives Glasgow, it's part of what explains this really concerning thing in Glasgow of a very, very low life expectancy. There are other cities who undergo similar types of shocks. So how does Glasgow compare? The the reason Glasgow is fascinating is not just because its high was so high, but it's also because it's low, so low. So yes, you're you're right. I mean, one might think that you could kind of compare Glasgow and Edinburgh and do a little compare and contrast. Actually, the the West Coast large industrial cities with a strong uh, industrial link, a strong link um, historically to Ireland, um, links of of religion. Uh, are Liverpool and Manchester. And those sociologists looking at kind of health expectations feel are the best comparators with Glasgow. And they have undergone exactly, as you say, the, these problems of deindustrialization. Manchester, of course, you know, arguably the home of the, the factory, the birth of the factory. But even so, you know, those places have seen much of these problems. Glasgow still has what medics call an early death problem. That's people dying far before what we think their life expectancy should be, that's 30% higher than in Liverpool and Glasgow, in Liverpool and Manchester, excuse me. And so 
that's the reason why people think Glasgow is is puzzling and why this this term, this disastrous thing, the Glasgow effect, a, a mystery that kind of kills people in Glasgow, um, has taken hold. So this is this sounds like a, a kind of classic case of, of people being left behind. They were hit by this big shock. They weren't they weren't able to recover, and and something it sounds like was was worse in Glasgow than in other places. You went to Glasgow. You have clearly done lots of research into this. What's your theory for why it was so bad in Glasgow? It's it's a really active area of research. But speaking to people and going back and back to Glasgow and, and meeting people that had lived there, particularly people in their 70s and 80s who could really remember Glasgow in its heyday, I kind of became convinced and I kind of set out the idea in the book that it's got something to do with housing policy and the way that housing policy seems to have damaged social capital in the city. Tell us a bit more about that. What was Glasgow's original housing policy? Because the city booms due to first to tobacco and then to shipbuilding and all the associated industries, the population shoots up. It had faster population growth than anywhere else in the UK. And a unique form of housing, the Glaswegian tenement, came to kind of solve that problem. Uh, It's a very dense form of housing. It's a kind of single building with with lots and lots of small apartments in it. They're called single ends. A single end is when a whole family lives in a single room and they have things like kind of fold-down beds um, to make that work. Or some people, slightly better off, would live in what's known as a room and kitchen. So you had a kitchen and just a single room that that you all slept in. So it was very, very dense form of housing and because of that it became some of it became squalid and and came under increased criticism that it was a kind of unacceptable way for people to live so that doesn't sound all that pleasant though so <laughs> what, what were the good i mean were there good aspects of that it doesn't it doesn't sound pleasant and that was the policy view certainly in the uk that was taken of it and certainly there were some tenements that were in in really bad condition. But when you go there and talk to the people that lived in them, actually what they often express was a great deal of loss and concern about the the demise of the tenements. Oh, where is the Glasgow where I used to stay? The white wally closes done up with pipe clay. Where he knew every neighbour prefers floor to third. And to keep your door locked was considered absurd. So, to, to, to take the examples, the thing that's always criticised is the idea of shared bathrooms and shared toilet facilities. But when you talk to many people that lived in them, they say that the, the toilets were absolutely spotless. They were a common resource in the building and, and families took pride in keeping the building tidy. But the, the more important thing is that having talked to these people and social capital is a very controversial thing in economics. Some people think it doesn't exist. Some people think it's kind of too nebulous. But when you talk to the people there, there were this deep system of norms, traditions, interactions with one neighbor, one's neighbours that in a very economic way made a, the tough life of the shipbuilding workers easier. So this ended up breeding a, a sort of a sense of community amongst these these people that lived in these tenements. 
I would say it's actually it's much more than a sense of community. And it, I, I really came to believe that it's a system of, they're really a system of norms that actually makes economic life much easier and better off. So the, the first one is the fact that people lived in these individual houses because you knew your neighbours, um, people had lived together for a long time, reputation was very strong and trust was very high. And one of the things people told me is that in the tenem old tenements, people used to leave their key in their door. Now, across the UK and America as well, I guess, um, you hear people say, oh, we used to leave our, door, our front door open. But if you think about it, that's because you trust your neighbour, so you leave your front door open. Leaving your key in your door is a bigger statement. It's an invitation for them to come into your home. And that's what people did. So if they ran out of some cooking staple or something, they'd just go into their neighbor's house, use it, leave them a little note on the expectation that the neighbor would do the same for them. And really, when the more you talk to people, you understand that a very small system of private spaces was actually a much larger public space. And kind of being more rigorous and economic about it, it's actually a more intense use of that housing infrastructure. And I think that's down to the kind of trust. Similarly, going back to those Marshallian ideas, there was strong information networks. Everybody worked in shipping. Everybody knew where the opportunities were in shipping. And so as soon as somebody was out of work, they'd find out where the new opportunities were. What I'm saying is the housing, the system of housing actually helped that labor pool work. Another example would be financial innovations. The, the Glaswegians had this ingenious thing. Uh, it's, it's written menage, the, the French word. They pronounce it menage. And it's a kind of credit union. It's essentially a risk-free way to save and to ensure that um, it's like a lottery where there's no loser and the house doesn't take any margin. So at some point during the year, because you pay into it, you know you're going to get a lump sum. And that helped people, um, it helped women invest in new, new linen, new cookers and so on, and it helped men invest in their tools. And again, that's all built on trust. So very, what, we, what I think all economists would accept are um, hard, productive parts of, of economics, i.e. the use of infrastructure, the way the labour market works, and the way the financial system works, were actually deeply tied to the, the housing, the way the houses were set up. Oh, where is the Glasgow where I used to stay? And so how did that change? What changed was a radical and, again, at the time, ambitious system of rehousing. So Glasgow, two things happened. The first was Glasgow built up. It went from a low-rise city into Europe's highest-rise city. It had the highest um, apartment blocks in, in the whole of Europe. And these were cutting-edge buildings um, built by the, the finest architects of the time. And some families were moved into those. The second thing that happened is that Glasgow was dispersed, this, this dense city, um, four very large um, low-rise housing, single, single and double-storey housing um, developments were built on the fringes of the city, literally northeast, northwest, southeast, southwest corners of the city, each of them to house about 30,000 people. The important thing to note is that the vast majority of this was social housing. So people didn't have the choice of where they wanted to go. And families that had been together for decades often were dispersed into these new housing systems. And that was the thing that the locals there described and lamented. They no longer knew their neighbours. All of this reputation that they had built up, all of these traditions, these systems of trust 
had gone and suddenly they had to adapt to these new places. When exactly was all of this taking place? So this is happening around the same time as it's becoming clear that Glasgow is facing um, deep problems from the, from the loss of shipping. So the, the, the first big build um, of these high-rise places starts in the 60s and 70s. It also goes back another Glaswegian first. You know, they had the first TV, they've had the first um, steam-built ship. Because the city grew so quickly, um, Glasgow was the first British city to create social housing, so government-built housing. And because unemployment was so so high and the city was so economically troubled, the vast majority of the people from the tenements were social, in social housing. And that's why they didn't have choice and they weren't able to kind of stick together in the communities that had built up when they went into these new housing developments. And so these other places, Manchester, Liverpool, they didn't have this same kind of shock to housing policy at the same time as this industrial uh, shock? Many British cities followed suit, but as is, as is always the, the case with Glasgow, it is Britain's most extreme city. No other place did it to that extent. So if you take the data on the amount of rehousing or the ratio of people that were rehoused in Glasgow and Manchester, yes, of course, it happened there and it happened in London, this trend to building uh, skyscrapers for people, for people to live in. But, but Glasgow just took it to a degree that no other city did. And they both built those places, and then because of underinvestment, uh, they became really unpopular places to live, very troubled places, and then destroyed them. So Glasgow went from having skyscrapers everywhere, cutting-edge pieces of design, to blowing them up about 20 years later. And so if you look at the hard data on the, the number of times a family has been moved around, Glasgow stands clear as the leader. Last question. What do you think the main policy lessons are from this case study of Glasgow? I take two big lessons from my trips to Glasgow. The first one goes back to something which is, is certainly being looked at by economists and I think by policymakers. And it goes back to those positive spillovers, those Marshallian um, agglomeration externalities. And it's it's more or less that if you're working, you know, in the uh, US Treasury Department or HM Treasury in the UK, and you hear that uh, a company, a big company is going to leave a place, you, you're going to do some analysis on what this, those spillover effects are going to be. And they're going to be direct ones um, that you can trace through the supply chain. But almost always, there's, you're going to be making an, uh, an underestimate. So when a country or a city sees that it has a problem, and it, if it thinks it's kind of because of market failure or um, unfair competition abroad, and so there's a justification for policy, policy needs to be more vigorous. You know, we, we, we can't measure this stuff. Um, we don't measure these benefits. And when we don't measure these benefits, we ignore them as policymakers. So that's, that's the first problem. Uh, and the second one, again, uh, you know, social capital is a very controversial thing in economics. Um, on the left, people think, because it's kind of free and communities build it themselves, that it's an excuse for really stingy provision of public services. Um, and on the right, um, people think that uh, it's not worth investing in and you can't measure it anyway. It's too amorphous, just ignore it. 
again, as when I went to Glasgow, and, and, and I had shared some of that scepticism, but now having been to Glasgow and also um, seeing some of the other communities that have shown incredible resilience through the course of researching this book, I've become convinced that it is definitely an important factor of economic life. And um, simply in a completely non-nebulous way that I think all economists should agree with, it means that capital is put to better use, it means that labour markets work more effectively, and it, it provides a kind of invisible safety mechanism. And the problem there is, is, a, is a really deep one because the modern policymaker is driven and almost obsessed by measurement and data and anything that you can't measure in a very clear quantitative way and you can only discover about when you go and kind of interview people in a soft qualitative way tends to get ignored. So I think we're going to ignore this stuff and that it's hugely valuable and that could lead to policy mistakes. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And that is all for Trade Talks. I do hope that you enjoyed that as much as we did. And if you did, tell us about it. We love tweets, we love emails, and we especially love iTunes reviews. We love iTunes reviews. Huge thanks again to Richard Davies. Do buy Richard's new book, Extreme Economies, What Life on the World's Margins Can Teach Us About Our Own Future. It is out now, both in the UK and in the US. And thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. So Richard, I got really confused about your book because I saw it on all of these kind of best of lists um, for 2019, but but it wasn't out in the US then, right? Yes, of course, because as you know, as everybody knows, two book release dates is much better than one. Perfectly set up. (laughs) I want a final thank you to Green Tracks Recording Limited, who allowed us to use a portion of Adam McNaughton's song, The Glasgow That I Used To Know. Oh, where is the Glasgow where I used to stay? The white wally closes done up with pipe clay. But he knew every neighbour prefers floor to third And to keep your door locked was considered absurd